this week on the Backtable Podcast. If the fundamental problem that we're trying to address is the disparities in quality of healthcare across borders, and Southeast Asia is a perfect example of that, in what is not a very large geographic area, you've got massive variation in quality of healthcare. And so if that is the problem we're trying to solve, one way to solve it is to bring the demand to the supply where the supply is good, right? And that's the whole model of medical travel and medical tourism. So a more sustainable way of solving this problem would be to look at the demand side itself and say, how do you iron out the disparities in the quality of healthcare through better practitioner education and upskilling, right? So that's, in my view, addressing the problem at its root as opposed to facilitating medical travel. And so I felt I was solving the same problem, but in a different way through the physician network. Hey everyone and welcome to the Backtable Innovation Podcast. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. This is our next installment in the Backtable Innovation Show where you will hear stories from physician entrepreneurs who are helping to drive healthcare forward through medtech innovation. Today we've got a very special episode on the Innovation Show. We are going to be discussing innovations in digital health in the developing world. Uh, we have not really covered this uh, to date. Uh, and with us today, we have the CEO and founder of MediCenter, Interbon Lahiri. Interbon, first of all, did I pronounce your name correctly? I think you did. You did a very good job. And, and is it okay if I call you Annie going forward? Absolutely. That's what everybody calls me, especially in this part of the world. So <laughs> feel free. All right. Well, Annie, thank you so much for coming on. Welcome to the sh to Backtable. Thanks for having me. Annie and I met on LinkedIn. Uh, I forget which of us reached out to the other one, but uh, both very interested in what we, uh, the platforms that we're building and all kind of focused on medical education. You know, Backtable is born out of the US, but we are kind of trying to go a little bit more global with, with our reach and, and having more international speakers on the show or, or interviewees on the show. And um, Annie's going to tell us about MediCenter, what inspired that. Um, before we jump into that, Annie, I, I want you to kind of, just for our uh, listeners, tell us a little about who you are, what's your background, what you were doing before you started MediCenter. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, I was sort of born and brought up in India, but from a pretty early age, I guess, as a teenager, moved overseas to the Netherlands, went to college in America, and then happened to live in five different countries around the world. So I consider myself more of a global citizen, cliche as that sounds, but, you know, I somehow ended up by design and partly, I suppose, by circumstance in a frontier market like Vietnam, which I never thought I'd be ever living in. So life is a funny way of, of playing out. That being said, I, I certainly enjoyed the the adventure, and I, I really have developed uh, a very global perspective, having lived in the West, studied in the West, and then uh, spent a significant amount of time in in, in the developing world. Uh, so I, I, you know, I I went to college in the states um, back in those days uh, when you studied in New York. So I went to Columbia University for my undergrad. Coming out of any school in New York, uh, the thing you did uh, if you had any any ambition was actually go to Wall Street. So even though I trained more in sort of applied science and, and engineering, it was a joint degree with Columbia University and, and Columbia School of Engineering and Applied Science, I was sort of drawn into, or I should perhaps say sucked into uh, the whole uh, Wall Street fever, ended up becoming an investment banker straight out of college. And the rest of my career uh, is sort of a patchwork of finance, uh, which, which I ended up sort of starting out in. But also, I've dabbled in entrepreneurship. I 
left the States after uh, a stint in banking and consulting to move back to India and help my uh, father, actually, who did an angel invested in an engineering services business. I was a rookie at the time, helped build it up from scratch, essentially, uh, following which I uh, decided to pursue an MBA at, at, uh, uh, in the UK at London Business School. And it was while I was in London that I got really sort of intrigued by the idea of being in early stage developing countries. Emerging markets were, were close to my heart in general, but frontier markets were something I'd heard about for the very first time, having met a bunch of investors at a conference in London. Uh, I ended up spending a summer doing an internship in Cambodia, which Aaron, I know you are intimately familiar with. And while I was in Cambodia, I happened to visit a friend here in Vietnam, and I was quite quite sort of intrigued by what I saw. I saw a country that at the time was in the midst of an economic crisis, but had tremendous potential in my view, both by virtue of the size of its population, the basic levels of education and infrastructure, and I thought this country would blossom. So I went back to London uh, for my final semester, very clearly knowing that I would, did not want to come back. Uh, I didn't want to, did not want to pursue a sort of regular banking or consulting career track out of business school and actively sought out opportunities in this part of the world. So I ended up joining a private equity fund, a Scandinavian fund that was investing in Vietnam and moved here with them. Uh, and that was for me fantastic because it gave me a perfect sort of bird's eye view of the economy, businesses, uh, the regulatory landscape, et cetera. I subsequently spent many years working in different finance roles, including covering the stock market here as a sort of head of equity research for a few major brokers, uh, running an M&A advisory firm, but I always had this gnawing interest in digital health. I do come from a family of doctors. My grandfather was a pretty well-known neurosurgeon back home. So health is something and, and medicine is something that's pretty close to my heart. But then this journey in digital health started with a personal incident, which I can tell you more about, but I think yeah. you want to step in and say something, Aaron? I do. So yeah, let's jump into that personal incident. But first I want to step back to your, your background of like, you know, basically being raised, you, you mentioned you lived in multiple countries growing up, right? Um, in the States, we have a, a saying for that. It's, it's commonly known to be associated with like the military. So they call it like an army brat, right? Or a military, right? You probably, you probably heard that. And, and yep. there's advantages and disadvantages of that, right? Some people say, well, it's great. Your, your child gets this international education. They learn about multiple cultures. Growing up, and then others like, well, you don't, you don't, there's no stable home life, so you're always like on the road and not making friends and stuff. Can you just because this is something that Gopi and I are, you know, currently, you know, we're living in Paris and we're trying to give our kids this this experience. Anything about that being raised that way and growing up that way that you think was particularly advantageous and even maybe a little bit disadvantageous? Sure, I think the the advantages of of, of that kind of uh, sort of I would say childhood is simply that you have much, much wider and broader perspective than the average person who's pretty much spent their lives or, gr or growing up in, in one particular city or country. Uh, so from a, you know, from, from a pretty formative age, you're exposed to new cultures, languages, styles of teaching even, right? I remember when I left India and ended up in the Netherlands, the way they taught calculus and, and, and trigonometry was so different from what we knew back in India that it was a massive eye-opener. Um, and so... I think that the the advantages really are that you end up becoming far more, I would say, multifaceted and well-rounded as an individual. And you're also very adaptive because you have to keep on sort of, you just find yourself transplanted into a completely new set of circumstances and you have to somehow adapt. 
So that adaptability, I think, is a critical asset, particularly in a world like we live in today where things change so fast that even living in the same city or the same country are continuously having to, 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 to adapt to changing circumstances. But the disadvantages, I think, are exactly what you alluded to, Aaron, which is you tend to not have a set of steady friends. You do have a sense that you're a nomad, that you don't really have roots or you're not anchored anywhere. And even to this day, I sometimes feel like I don't know where my roots really are. Um, yes, I yeah. do hail from India. I'm, I was born there, but uh, is that really home? I'm not entirely sure. So there's a sense of, there's a little bit of a void that comes with this uh, nomadic lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree with that. I, I could totally see that. But I don't know. I, I kind of feel like the advantages outweigh the uh, disadvantages in that case. I mean, I, I wholeheartedly agree with everything you said about, you know, being adaptable and learning all this, all these other um, cultures and languages. Um, it, it, I, I think, it, especially as an entrepreneur, somebody in the business world, I think, it, you know, as the world becomes more global, it would give you an advantage uh, going forward. And clearly it has for you. But so let's jump into, I, I do want to hear more about the story about uh, the, the sort of, you know, the idea that sparked MediCetter. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So MediCetter actually did not start out as a physician network, which it is today, right? MediCetter started out with an unfortunate personal incident where I was playing football here in Vietnam one day and it was sort of rough and tumble game, got hit very badly on the nose ended up having a sort of deviated nasal septum, which led to yeah. chronic sinusitis, lots of problems with sleeping and, and breathing. And, you know, one thing sort of led to another. And I remember going to the, you know, to the ENT specialist here, and I got all kinds of differing opinions. Some said I needed a surgery to correct the deviated septum. Others said I should just leave it be, et cetera. And then ultimately, uh, I did end up getting operated on because the symptoms were intolerable. And uh, it was a disaster. It was a completely bot surgery. And then I went on a essentially a seven-year quest to look for solutions to this problem, right? And I ended up having to go to about seven or eight different countries, consulted a ton of different doctors, specialists from every different field, from sleep specialists to ENTs to pulmonologists. Uh, and ultimately, I managed to get, I had to get four corrective surgeries in the sinuses wow. to sort out this issue. And it was since resolved, but I guess what the pro what I went through, the hellish experience that I went through, convinced me that there's a there was a huge opportunity to help people who were looking for medical treatment uh, that is not available where they reside or where they're located, and need to find out the sort of best sort of centers of excellence for that particular kind of treatment or condition, you know, elsewhere. And I realized that the whole problem. The whole problem originated from the fact that it was an unorganized, fragmented space. There were individual agents and intermediaries who sort of facilitated this medical tourism uh, industry, but there were a lot of sort of agency conflicts. Uh, they were not incentivized to give the patient's choice. Uh, yeah. They represented specific hospitals, et cetera. So the idea originally of MediCetter was to set up a marketplace for medical travel and allow patients give the power back to the patients to let them seek out the best treatment options uh, based on impartial, I suppose, facts and, and figures and on, on quality price points, et cetera. Hence the name MediCetter, by the way, because it's jet setting for medical purposes, if, in case you're wondering okay. why a yeah. physician network's called MediCetter. 
So that's how it started. But then, you know, we started, I realized that to bring down the customer acquisition cost, it was best to work with local doctors in the source countries. And Vietnam was one of our major source countries because an estimated 40,000 Vietnamese travel overseas uh, annually for medical treatment in places like Singapore, Thailand, and other parts of, of Asia. And, uh, you know, people don't just get a, get a stomach ache and jump on a plane. Typically, they've been through a few rounds of, you know, investigation domestically, then they realize they've got something severe which needs to be treated overseas. And that's usually where they travel overseas. So the idea of working with local doctors as referral channels to facilitate Vietnamese patient travel overseas made perfect sense. And then, you know, we, we started building this network. It started growing really, really fast. And then the pandemic hit. So I was in a situation where I said, well, hang on, there's no travel. Yeah. There's certainly no medical travel for some time to come. And I can't wait indefinitely and mothball this business because I don't know when borders are going to reopen. But we have this fast-growing doctor network, which we were originally building to feed the medical travel portal. But I had studied this model of physician networks. So back in business school, I'd studied M3's model, M3 being the pioneer in physician networks, you, you could argue, based out of Japan. And I'd even visited them in 2013 to pitch them on entering India. Uh, so I knew this model intimately well. And I said, how do I turn what is a disadvantage, i.e. the pandemic, into an advantage? So it was a disadvantage from the original business model because there was no travel, uh, no cross-border travel particularly. But it could become an advantage if I turn this doctor network into a digital platform for pharmaceutical and medical device companies to engage HCPs, right? Because the same reasons that people couldn't travel overseas or travel anywhere for that matter were also the reasons that pharmaceutical companies couldn't actually engage with uh, clinicians the way they normally do through sales reps and medical conferences and the like. So Medicetter's business model was pretty much pivoted overnight uh, and it became a physician network, not unlike an M3 or uh, a Doximity in the US today or in the UK, a doctors.net.uk. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that story. That is incredible. I can't believe you suffered that long. And now it makes total sense why it's called Medicenter. Did you have any co-founders when you started the company originally? I did not actually. Um, I pretty much decided to uh, start on my own uh, with the idea that I'd eventually be able to bring in a co-founder. I would have liked to have started with a co-founder, but finding the right person who was equally passionate about the idea was was not the easiest thing. And I felt that time was of, uh, of, of the essence. And so I wanted to start and look for a co-founder along the way rather than wait for the perfect, to assemble the perfect team or co you know, founding team uh, before actually commencing the, the venture. So I yeah. was a solo founder, uh, but at the moment I do have a co-founder. Okay. And um, did you, are you familiar with like EOS, with like integrator and visionary, that whole... You know, it's sort of like CEO and COO, right? It's like the the, the right. perfect match. Yes. It's is. Did yeah. you find yourself in that position where you were trying to be both and needed maybe like a COO or something like that? Absolutely, I did. Absolutely, I did. So yeah. I think my strengths are more in terms of conceptualization, strategy, relationships, etc. Relationships, uh, and you know, I really felt a burning need to have somebody who was running the day to day ops. Yeah. So. Yeah. That was uh, that was a uh, honestly a major source of frustration along the way, and to be honest, it's still a work in process. But at least I've got a co-founder who is uh, on the technical side involved quite operationally. Yeah, yeah, that that definitely helps. I mean, especially since, like you said, you have this vision. Um, 
and you know how, how you want it to, to look like, but you know all the steps to get there. It takes somebody who, um, and, and sometimes a lot of people who are solo founders, they end up playing both the, wearing both those hats for a long time. But once you reach a certain size, you like you said, you need somebody who can just handle the day to day and and handle accountability, right? With, exactly with your, with your employees and everything. And so what? So I just curious about market research. So you you had this pivot during COVID. What? Mm-hmm. kind of market research did you do in terms of like trying to figure out, okay, there, there is a clear, I mean, you, you saw this void in medical knowledge that you, you feel like needed to be filled, but what about on the, on the B2B side in terms of, you know, pharmaceutical companies, how did you research that aspect of it? Sure. Right. So actually we started out uh, looking at the doctors because I think that was fundamental. If the doctors, if we didn't have a proposition for the doctors, then we wouldn't have a proposition, anything to offer to the pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. So the the doctor research was literally about conducting lots of individual interviews uh, with doctors to understand their unmet needs and behaviors. But on the B2B side, I had to rely pretty much on my relationships in the pharmaceutical industry. So I happened to know a lot of people who were working in pharma in Vietnam in senior management positions, whether they were either product managers, brand managers, or you know, uh, senior levels in the commercial departments of these companies. And I basically just had informal conversations with them to really understand whether uh, there was any scope for offering some sort of digital HCP engagement solution. To be completely honest, though, and that was obviously before the pandemic, the response was a little bit lukewarm. I noticed that a large number of people who had even been in the industry for a long time didn't even understand the concept, Mm. right? So there was a, I, I did take a leap of faith there. Some would say it was brash. But, um, you know, I was also lucky because we had a, pan- in some senses, we had a pandemic around the corner during which people who, I, who had, were basically digital novices in the pharmaceutical industry overnight had to learn what digital HCP engagement meant. Uh, yeah. And so some of that solved the problem I mentioned earlier. But yes, the initial market research, if you will, uh, or validation uh, was done primarily through individual conversations because there was no real example at the time of any pharma company, even big pharma here, spending substantial amounts of money on digital uh, programs to target clinicians. Yeah, I mean, we see, uh, I, I could see that definitely uh, in, in Vietnam, um, you know, in the US, obviously there's a lot of money that goes into getting in front of healthcare providers. You know, we have a similar model with device companies specifically because most of our shows are more surgical subspecialties. So uh, device companies want to get in front of our docs. And so I definitely feel your pain in terms of uh, educating them on this is something new and different, getting outside their box a little bit of you know the typical, okay, we're going to invest in marketing and journals, conferences, and maybe a little bit of digital, you know, uh, but well-established like Becker Healthcare type websites, right? Yep. For podcasting was completely different. And so I definitely feel your pain in terms of like trying to show them what the potential impact is and what the uh, potential reach is in terms of uh, getting, you know, docs. And it sounds like you uh, did a great job and were able to very quickly grow this network of Vietnamese physicians. Any advice for others out there who are trying to build physician communities? It is tough. It is very challenging. There's a cr- there's credibility. There's you got to um, you know how, know how to get in front of them as well. Um, you know, here in the U.S., there's a lot of docs on LinkedIn. We use social media to get in front of docs, but how are you doing that in Vietnam? Yeah, so in Vietnam, I guess we've followed a multi-pronged approach. Uh, I think 
one major engine for physician recruitment has been events. Um, and the, and I guess the fact that we really started organizing these events during COVID meant that they were really well received because doctors couldn't attend any physical conferences or seminars. So webinars were in high demand. And, uh, you know, obviously later, I think, later during the, uh, the pandemic, I think uh, doctors felt they were a bit flooded with webinar invitations from pharmaceutical companies. But there was a lag of at least a year to a year and a half where the pharma industry, at least in this part of the world, had not really caught on to this. And so we sort of sensed a void and went out there and aggressively promoted these digital events for doctors to stay updated on, on their knowledge. So those became a major engine to recruit HCPs. We featured doctors from all over the world as speakers and content collaborators, including from leading U.S. institutions like the Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, uh, Harvard Medical School, et cetera. So we were able to bring something new and fresh and novel to the clinicians here by way of content at a time when there was very little else that was available for them to consume. And so that helped us really build up a critical mass of, of, of members. However, in these markets, I think you also have to work with uh, offline partners and the medical societies and associations play an important role. A, because they already have a sort of verified pool of, of, of members who are HCPs, but also it gives you that stamp of credibility in the eyes of the physician population when you're partnered with them. So we, we aggressively built up these relationships with societies and medical universities uh, or any sort of accredited CME center and started organizing um, official continuing medical education seminars and events. And those became a powerful engine also for physician recruitment because each of these associations could have hundreds, if not thousands of members who were notified anytime we actually did an event with that association. So that was a sort of a, a way of bulk recruiting, if you will, where through one event, you could recruit a large number of members into your network. So it was a combination of online and offline, but over the, you know, I guess in the last year or so, we started noticing some amount of sort of peer-to-peer -peer referrals as well, where existing members were roping in other members or referring their, you know, friends and inviting them to join our network. So it was a combination of all of those together. But I think my advice to somebody trying to do this in a developing country would be to really try and understand how you're going to verify and validate the identity of those who join your network. Yeah. Uh, because that's a major challenge in some of these markets. In Vietnam, for instance, there is no open, publicly available government database where I could just go and punch in a medical license number and see if this is real or not. Yeah. So you've got to kind of use these associations and other techniques uh, for validation because what you don't want to do is be lax with your vetting process and then be saddled with a huge number of members with questionable quality where you don't actually know how many are HCPs and how many aren't. Yeah. I don't know uh, if you were aware, but like early days, Doximity, I remember what they did was they, they had these databases, right? And it was, you got an email all of a sudden that says, claim your profile. And they were able to source somehow your resume, maybe from LinkedIn or from some something else. And it would say, okay, you know, make sure that your your profile's up to date. And you're like, how did they get all this information? And <laughs> it was it was wild. But I mean, that's how it seemed like that's how they created their network was just, you know, using databases, sending you an email and saying, Hey, claim your profile. Here's some other people that you graduated from medical school with that would like to connect with you. 
And it's it's an interesting approach, right? Uh, it sounds like you guys don't have those resources to do that sort of thing. So it was more of a peer-to-peer kind of growth, which is more organic, you got to admit. But any any other kind of like red tape or regulations in a, in a developing country that, that can stunt the growth? Absolutely. So I think coming to your point about Doximity's, uh, I think Doximity, from my understanding, also use some sort of heavy lifting, clunkier ways of building their network. I know, I know for a fact they'd set up a booth at uh, medical conferences and try and sign up doctors on the spot, right? Yeah. Uh, and give them, give hand out some freebies in exchange. So, uh, but, yeah. but you know, in, in countries like Vietnam, it's much harder to do the, uh, to use the online tactics, basically scraping publicly available sources to create these profiles simply because there is not much of a digital trail that exists today Yeah. Uh, that is left by doctors, right? So in a sense, we're kind of trying to bring these doctors and then their identities online for the very first time. So that's 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 a challenge. Uh, and I think in in at least in these countries, there are also very strict rules around personal data protection. And you know, if you start randomly approaching physicians who've never applied to be a part of your network, you might actually be in breach of some of these rules, which say that you haven't explicitly obtained obtained consent. So there are some of these dynamics which make it more challenging. And because these are societies where I suppose there's some level of censorship of the internet, you have to be quite careful yeah. uh, with what you do. But I think that uh, on the flip side, because there isn't much by way of a physician digital ecosystem in these countries, doctors just like you and me are, are on social media and they're very active on social media. So you might have far higher visibility uh, among the doctor population on a conventional social media channel in Vietnam, let's say, than you would in the United States. And so if you've got smart digital techniques and you know how to promote yourself through genuine content that is valuable to those uh, that audience, then you could really harness the power of social media, which is what we did. Yeah. And, and you and I have spoken, we spoke when we first talked about content you know, and curation of content and, and uh, you know, helping physicians kind of break through the noise because uh, there's a lot out there, right? On social media, especially Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, people are posting stuff. Uh, we, we post a lot of stuff ourselves. And, you know, the whole thing being, you know, what do you want your brand to be? Do you want it to be associated with high quality content or just quantity, right? Because we know that those can be a little bit mutually exclusive. Like you can't just, I mean, nobody has like a content flywheel that can just pump out high quality stuff every single day. And so we do see a lot of noise out there. And so how, how I know that's a challenge uh, from one content creator to another and, and in terms of platforms, but how are you guys trying, how are you guys overcoming that challenge um, up, you know, historically and then maybe in the future? Right. So I think we made a cons- conscious decision early on not to go with the quantity approach. Yeah. Uh, and the reason is very simple because there are a lot of informal sort of groups and, you know, on social media in Vietnam, and I'm sure this is the case in other countries in Asia, where, you know, doctors and medical students do sort of have their informal discussions. There's an abundance of quantity, but there's very little quality. There's no quality control. Some of the content is spammy. There are lots of jokes that go around, et cetera. So we said, look, we don't want to compete with them. We have no USP or particular competitive advantage, but what we do want to compete on is quality because there's a dearth of that, Yeah. right? So we said, look, you might have your informal groups with your medical, your class and your, your students and your colleagues and et cetera, but 
you know, if you want a destination that is all about curated, high qualified, high quality verified content that is sourced from all over the world, uh, then Medisetter should be the destination. We, we want to be associated with that. And we've stuck to that strategy. We limit the amount of content in consciously um, and we focus on quality rather than, than quantity. Yeah, and the, and the other thing that, in, in, along those same lines, well, the other thing that you and I have spoken about is how do you involve industry in this sort of platform where you're trying to get out quality over quantity? And, you know, they, uh, of course, you know, I mean, it's natural. They want to have some influence. Um, that's why they're, they're spending money on advertising. How do you, what, I know that's a challenge on the device side. Uh, what have you seen that being challenging on the pharma side? Yeah, I think that is obviously, um, that, that's a difficult balance. It's a tightrope walk. But I think ultimately, you've also could be, you also have to be a little bit discerning with, with your clients and your choice of clients and who you want yeah. to work with. Yeah. And I think we've had uh, quite serious discussions in the past with some of our partners and clients about essentially us telling them that a certain kind of comment is, uh, content is overtly promotional or detracts from you know, what we consider to be the general philosophy and content ethos of Medicetter and also ultimately comes back to compromise their brand. Right. Um, and so when we are having conversations with prospective clients, I think we're very upfront in telling them, you know, what our policies are. And we base that on fact. And there's a lot of research out there, uh, there's a company called Indigene, which produces some pretty good insights, um, which show that doctors are increasingly skeptical of commercial sounding content. Yeah. And ultimately that comes back to backfire. So the idea here that we always tell our clients and partners is to focus on, you know, really giving good scientific education and tools and resources to equip the doctors to deliver better patient outcomes. That's when they really will start remembering who you are and respecting you as a brand, as opposed to just spamming them with commercial content. Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, that's the conversation we have with everybody. It's just, hey, look, we don't make infomercials. That's not helping you. It's not helping us. You know, we we're trying to get you in front of a target audience. That's really what uh, that's really what their what their goal should be, right? Is to help put out good, high quality educational content and align with that value. Exactly. Uh, and you know, I mean, look, there's ideal customers, and there's less than ideal customers, and you know, it's it's you just learn as you go. Is um, I'm sure you guys have had a similar experience. So I, I did want to ask you about. Has, you know, along the lines of, you know, we talked, we mentioned Doximity, there's other kind of similar platforms out there. In fact, going back to your original idea of helping patients find, you know, basically docs that could take care, you know, the highest kind of quality docs, centers of excellence. There's, we had Rusty Hoffman on the show real early on, created a company called Grand Rounds, and he had a similar experience. He had a, a you know, a family member who suffered a rare disorder. And he, he is a physician and he had a hard time navigating the healthcare system to try and mm -hmm. find the right doc for that disorder in the US, right? Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And so that inspired him to create this company that basically helps people do just that and aligns with your insurance, right? And so yep. um, I, it just reminded me of that, of that story uh, that you, but you, you suffered it directly yourself and it just goes to show like, it's these it's these patient experiences that actually inspire a lot of these digital health platforms, right? Because Absolutely. they're they're subpar. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy how how subpar they are, you know. 
Exactly. And actually, to that point, I mean, you know, when I decided to pivot the business model, and that was largely induced by the pandemic, but I also found a deeper logic in, in the pivot. And the logic was that, you know, if the fundamental problem that we're trying to address is the unequal quality of the disparities in quality of healthcare across borders, and Southeast Asia is a perfect example of that, in what is not a very large geographic area, you've got massive variation in quality of healthcare, ranging from a country where healthcare is not particularly good, like a Myanmar or Laos, all the way to Singapore, which is a global center of excellence, separated only by you know a few hundred, if not just a couple of thousand kilometers. And so if that is the problem we're trying to solve, one way to solve it is to bring the demand to the supply, where the supply is good, right? And that's the whole model of medical travel and medical tourism. But at the end of the day, this is not a particularly sustainable way of solving the problem because the countries that see the outflow of patients also tend to be lower income with less resources. And that kind of drain of capital away from the country is obviously detrimental to the economic health of the country and to the individual patients that have to spend enormous amounts of money seeking treatment overseas. So a more sustainable way of solving this problem would be to look at the demand side itself and say, how do you iron out the disparities in the quality of healthcare through better practitioner education and upskilling, right? So that's, in my, in my view, addressing the problem at its root as opposed to facilitating medical travel. And so I felt I was solving the same problem but in a different way through the physician network. Yeah, because I mean, ultimately, you might even be transplanting patients to to cities where they're getting better healthcare. You know, over time, it, it's uh, you're right. I mean, it's bringing the education to the the areas where they they need it most. And and so, I mean, that's incredibly impactful. You know, and it, you you said that you started. I also want you you were already living in Vietnam. You're you're most sort of. I guess probably familiar with Vietnam, um, given your experience and where you were living. But I know that your vision, and you, you you keep mentioning Southeast Asia, your vision involves more than just Vietnam. Can you walk through maybe like a little bit of that vision, the roadmap? You know, what countries in Southeast Asia you see maybe delving into next? Sure. So yes, I, I think uh, Vietnam was the natural place to start, given that I'd been here, and I felt it was a good place to really create a proof of concept. Uh, Vietnam, I think, is the 15th most populous country in the world, so it's not exactly a tiny pond either, but it's 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 not that big that you can't get your arms around it. Uh, so we felt it was the perfect size uh, also to be actually testing this. It also tends, it also happens to have one of the world's fastest growing pharmaceutical markets. The Vietnam uh, pharma market is growing at about 10 to 12% per annum. It's already a, a sizable market in the Asia-Pacific region. I think the fourth largest, if I'm not mistaken. And so uh, the next steps, I suppose, would be to look at other sizable uh, geographies in Southeast Asia, but not necessarily only restricted to Southeast Asia. Uh, in Southeast Asia, we've been looking at countries like Thailand and the Philippines, uh, which again have sizable pharmaceutical markets, or in the case of the Philippines, a fairly high growth one. And we think that uh, you know uh, there's also certain pain points when it comes to physicians. Uh, where they would like more exposure or more forums for sharing their for sharing and, and consuming knowledge. But we could also look, and we have been, I have personally been spending some time examining other parts of the world with similar dynamics. Uh, South Asia comes to mind. I think there, uh, there's, you know, obviously it's very populous. Economic growth is quite strong in parts of South Asia. And I think, uh, you know, the governments of these countries tend to be resource constrained, so they don't have the resources really to, to invest in doctor education and upskilling. 
And the doctor to patient ratio is actually quite low relative to what's considered WHO's recommended standards. So I think there's huge scope for us in these countries to improve things on the practitioner side. But at the same time, I think pharmaceutical companies in these countries have been too reliant on offline channels to engage doctors, sales reps and conferences. And that's also created some sort of unholy nexus. Uh, you know, there, and there's a lot of sort of corrupt practices that, that prevail in these markets. Uh, I think it's in the interest of regulators to actually disintermediate that and digital is one great way to do that. But another interesting dynamic is in a lot of these countries, and I can certainly speak for Vietnam, the cost of hiring trained pharmacists to become sales reps is also rising rapidly. And so there are also economic reasons why pharma, pharma and medical device companies need to be less reliant on uh, relentlessly expanding their field forces to engage more doctors. Yeah. And because patient loads are rising, doctors are too busy to entertain these MRs. I mean, our interviews yeah. of sales reps here suggest they get no more of three minutes of FaceTime with most clinicians after having to loiter around for three hours in the, the hallways of these public hospitals to even get in the door. So we think parts of South Asia and potentially Africa and the Middle East could also be natural sort of adjacencies in some sense for us to expand our footprint into. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's incredible. Like you mentioned, the population of these countries are, are, are not small, right? I mean, compare them to the US and, and how Absolutely. densely populated they are. And so it sounds like an yep. incredible, there's incredible market opportunity there. My question when you mentioned all these, these countries, going back to like the regulatory issues, I imagine there, it's kind of like Uber, like you got to navigate new regulations with every country you kind of start to engage with. Have you, I, do you have like a, a R&D team that kind of looks at that stuff before you guys consider your next country? Absolutely. I mean, that's a pertinent point. I, I, you did mention earlier, sorry, I sort of glossed over that question, but I think red tape and regulation is a massive issue in, in these countries. Yeah. Uh, and I would say, honestly, it's probably one of the biggest downsides of developing these kinds of businesses in frontier and emerging markets. In fact, in many of these countries, the regulatory frameworks are always sort of catching up with the reality as opposed to preempting, right? And so yeah. if you look at a country like Vietnam, there was no law to govern sort of e-commerce or internet businesses for a very long time yeah. until several of these businesses emerged. And then the governments can sort of come in and try and regulate and, and formalize the industry. Sometimes that leads to uh, a little bit of retroactive regulation, which is not ideal because you've got to change your model when you realize that suddenly there's a law in place that, you know, you might, you might fa fall foul off, but which didn't exist when you started. Luckily though, you know, many of these governments are pragmatic. They want to attract investment and create entrepreneurial ventures and success stories. And so there are no nightmares, but, but, but yes, there are lots of rules and there are lots of sort of legal regulations in terms of what you can and cannot do, particularly as a foreign invested company. So yeah. it is also, as you correctly pointed out, very country specific. We don't have a team specifically dedicated to doing that because footprint expansion to different countries has not been a priority until now. Uh, so I've been largely doing that myself. And typically when I explore a new country, I identify local potential partners in these countries with whom I can have these conversations and who are very familiar with the regulatory landscape. And that's how I tend to do it. But yes, it, it, it does take up my time uh, in actually doing that groundwork and identifying the right people to speak to in these countries, because not everything is even written 
in the fine print of the law, right? You all, yeah. you always have to talk to people who understand the regulatory landscape. Yeah, and and so along those lines, I imagine you know that kind of research and it sounds very time and labor intensive. And starting a new starting a, a startup is expensive. How how did you fund it at the beginning? You know, was it bootstrapping, friends and family? You know, business partners, bank loans. And, you know, what is, you know, as you expect, look to expand, I imagine you're probably gonna have to raise capital in the future. Can you tell us that kind of roadmap? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I essentially bootstrapped, but I started MediCetter alongside uh, a full-time job where I had an agreement with the company that I had my passion project, which I was allowed to pursue on the side, as long as there was no sort of obvious conflict of interest in terms of competing with my employer. So I had that degree of freedom uh, and I traded off what would be a market salary at my previous job for the flexibility that came with taking on this new job so I would be able to spend significant amounts of time in developing MediCetter. But the fact that I had a paycheck coming in was a source of sustenance. It allowed me to maintain a tiny sort of lean operation and keep growing and acquiring new members into the network. Uh, but at some point, it became just way too much, right, yeah. to juggle both, and I had to make a decision. And at that point, I took the leap of faith and I said, look, this is the amount of funding I'm going to commit out of my own savings until the point where I can raise around. And if I don't raise around, well, then it's game over. And so I gave myself about a year, but then within, I think, about eight or nine months, I was able to raise a seed round uh, from a uh, couple of angel investors in, in, in Japan and, and South Korea. And um, uh, since then, we've had obviously some capital to work with and, you know, that's been deployed. Uh, but I am now looking we're just embarking on on the next fundraising round, uh, which we hope to close at some point this year. Uh, call it a post-seed round or a pre-series A round, if you will. And I guess this capital is going to be essential to really accelerate the monetization. Uh, so basically, yeah. a lot of it has to be invested in sales and product. And then a chunk of it would go into expanding into another geography, uh, depending on the sort of size of, of, the, of the round. But it is a, it's a massive, it's a very big consideration for any founder. And uh, particularly in times such as this, when there's startup banks that are blowing up left, yeah. right, and center, <laughs> uh, it is an important thing to be mindful of and, and, and have a clear plan, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, plan B or plan C. Yeah. Cash isn't just flowing around like it was a year or two ago, right? It's uh, absolutely going to be things have changed. tightening things have changed. here yeah, in the next several years, probably. Absolutely. But, you know, that just, it, it helps you prove your worth and and show that this there's a real you know de, you know market demand for it i think it it helps the startup in the end to not just have money thrown at it and so you know along those lines really um any advice for any you know digital health entrepreneurs out there that are maybe have an idea thinking about starting it kind of final thoughts for for anybody else who's inspired by listening to you speak Sure. So I would say in terms of digital health specifically as, as an industry or domain, I would say that it is very important to do the homework on firstly regulation. Uh, health is obviously a, a very regulated space. And I think a lot of founders start uh, with an unclear idea of what's required and what's allowed from a regulatory standpoint, and then later find, find themselves in, in hot water. So I think it's important to do that research upfront to avoid nasty surprises, particularly in digital health because of how regulated this industry is. The second thing I would say uh, is that health is a, it's actually a hyper-local kind of industry in some senses. On the one hand, if you look at drugs and 
molecules and devices. That's very global. But when it comes to actually doing things involving patient care and working with local practitioners or or the patient community, I think there are lots of very deep local nuances that um, a lot of entrepreneurs forget. And when they try and copy-paste models that work in, let's say, a developed market into an emerging market, inevitably, they're caught uh, on the wrong foot because there are a lot of local things in these markets which don't apply in more developed countries. And so using proof of concepts from them, from those countries and transplanting them here without adaptation is a is, is a crucial sort of critical error made by a lot of entrepreneurs. And um, I think the, uh, the other thing I would say in terms of uh, general advice is, and I, I think this is not specific to digital health itself, but it really is, you know, try to build a, a, a prototype of whatever product that you're uh, building at with the minimal cost possible. And everybody talks about MVPs and the like, but I think that, um, you know, there are ways to do it, you know, even in, I, I guess, strip it down even further in these markets. Uh, in Vietnam, for instance, when we started, we didn't even build our own platform. We used existing social networks and created private communities and things like Facebook and Zalo, which is a local popular messaging and social media app to really prove the concept. Can we recruit doctors into a private community? Can we get them to engage with our content? And what can we learn about their behavior so right. that we can actually use that knowledge to actually develop a platform later that's custom built and actually you know, reflects what we learned about the user behavior and journey. So that's, I think, very, very important in digital health, particularly so because a lot of what entrepreneurs are trying to do in digital health does not have precedence in, in, in these developing countries. And so when you're trying to do something completely new, there's a huge risk of product not having product market fit. And that can be avoided by using simple off-the-shelf solutions, existing platforms, and then ultimately developing your own uh, version when you've got, when you've proven uh, the model and the product market fit. Yeah, I think that's great advice, Annie. And it, it reminds me of when you and I first spoke, we were talking about content and sharing content and the fact that Backtable is trying to become more global and, and get, you know, reach a wider audience. And you, you kind of reminded me that, look, it's great, you know, we're very U.S. centric in turn, you know, physicians tend to be in the U.S. And you're like, look, Vietnamese docs want to hear from each other, right? It, they want to hear in their own language. They want to hear experts in, uh, in their country. It's great that you have U.S. docs that are, are well known, but it's, it's, uh, it's more advantageous if we actually get some, some local docs on, on the show. And so, and so we've been trying to do that just for our audience, um, in, in collaboration with you guys. And it's so true, though. It's, I mean, you know, I'm seeing the same thing in Europe as I talk to, you know, French uh, docs in France, docs in the UK. They're like, it's, you know, docs in France are like, we don't want to listen to it unless it's in French. You know, it's just, uh, it's just, yep. we speak English, but I'd much rather listen to my French colleague uh, educate me on something in, in French. And so these are some of the challenges of, be, of becoming, you know, more, trying to reach the, you know become more global in our reach and um i think that uh, it, it sounds like you guys are well aware of that again that that probably has to do with the way that you your upbringing right you you're more culturally aware uh of these differences and so i i i appreciate you know us connecting and i i'm really glad that we did and i know i'm going to learn a lot from you uh as we continue to build back table and i hope that we can always help you guys out in any way again to the audience, I you know when I first 
met Annie, I, I, I said, it sounds like you're building the doximity of Southeast Asia and it's, it's super exciting. And I, you know, kudos to you guys. Anything else uh, that we left out about, about uh, MediCenter, Annie, that you want the audience to hear about? Yeah, I would just, I would just come back to what you said, Aaron, um, in your closing remarks about the fact that there's a very sort of parochial, local kind of uh, dynamic in medicine where doctors want to hear from uh, each other in the same city or country. I think that, you know, our mission very much is to combine that yearning for local exchange because it's contextually relevant. They understand yeah. the challenges that they face, but also to bridge doctors in the developing world with their counterparts in global medical centers of excellence. Mm. Uh, for a French doctor to listen to an American doctor might not add as much value as for a Vietnamese doctor to learn from an American doctor, simply because of where these countries are in their stage of development, right? True. Yeah. And so the idea here really is, is how do we, it's threading a needle in some sense, but how do we walk that balance between bringing enough local interaction and, and sort of catering to that desire to hear from uh, their peers uh, and colleagues, you know, but at the same time, exposing them to what is latest and greatest in the world of medicine and what is actually happening in the global medical centers of excellence. And that's exactly why I reached out to you in the first place, Aaron, because we thought you could help bring us, you could help us bring some of that international perspective and flavor uh, in addition to what we're doing uh, in terms of local exchange and 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 uh, knowledge sharing. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like... Um... Khan Academy, you know, I, I think we were talking about that before too. It's just, yep. that's really what he set out to do. I mean, you know, around the world um, and, and just bringing in, in, in for them, it, it wasn't, you know, it's a different type of centers of excellence. It's subject matter experts. And there is a need for that. And like you said, if you can bring a local flavor to it, it's just complimentary, right? Um, Absolutely. And, yep. and, and so uh, thank you again, Andy, for coming on the show. I really uh, appreciate it. I'm looking forward to collaborating in the future. And um, to our audience, you know, some of the episodes that I mentioned earlier, we, we talked about uh, the uh, Grand Rounds episode with Rusty Hoffman. You can find that all in our library on backtable.com, Spotify, Apple, uh, or wherever you hear your podcasts. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Backtable Innovation on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable Innovation is produced and hosted by Brian Hartley, Aaron Fritz, Diana Velasquez-Pimentel, and Eric Yamaker. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kennebrew. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.